Welcome to episode 393 with my guest, Dr. Callie Estes. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Um, as I mentioned, I am traveling, recording non-American listeners, so I'm skipping a lot of the stuff I normally say before and after the interview, uh, but next week's episode, we will be back to uh, kind of the usual the usual flow of the podcast, maybe some more surveys, etc., etc. I want to tell you guys about one of our sponsors for today's episode, The Great Courses Plus. I have told you about a lot of the lectures on a variety of topics that I have checked out and loved. Uh, I want to tell you about another course they have called Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior. And boy, if there is a topic that is perfect for uh, you guys and me, I think that is it. It's uh, If you think about it, some of the biggest mysteries of why people do the things they do or have done. Uh, you got to understand the human mind and the way it works and why our personalities are the way they are. So uh, go check it out with the Great Courses Plus. You can learn from top experts about anything that interests you. Thousands of lectures on topics like psychology, history, science, the arts, even cooking or photography. And you can watch or listen anytime from anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. So I have a special limited time offer for you guys. You get a full month of unlimited access to their entire library for free at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental to start your free month. One more time. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental. Want to also give some love to BetterHelp.com. I've been using them for online counseling for over a year and a half, and I love them. And the feedback I get from other people who are using them is fantastic. And that's why they continue to advertise with us is because they like you and you like them. Ed, we all love each other. I wish I had like a little, uh, like a little accordion or a no a music box that would have been a perfect thing to make that moment a little cheesier but uh seriously go to betterhelp.com slash mental fill out a questionnaire they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18 and i highly recommend it i love my therapist and we do work every week that helps me in my life and helps me grow and deal with my fears and whatever blocks come up. And she's awesome. And more than anything, she laughs at my silly jokes. So you want to win me over, laugh at my jokes. I can't guarantee your betterhelp.com counselor will laugh at your silly jokes, but there's a chance they might. Before we get to the interview with uh, Callie, I want to read you a happy moment. This is filled up by a woman who calls herself, shut up and let me find my depression funny. And she writes, I've just turned 30 and feel like my life is beginning. I've been depressed as long as I can remember. At this moment, I feel so much love and gratitude for my life. I just started psychology at university. And then parentheses, by the way, I mentioned your podcast in my application. Thank you. I've also been backing away from Mormonism while still being able to attend for the sake of supporting my family and to be there for other outsiders who still want to attend. For a long time, I kept my doubts secret and drank coffee on the down low. Uh, 
I have, I have now been open about my doubt to everyone and I feel so at peace. But I hope to God that you have not let anybody know that you've been drinking caffeine. People have been kind about it, though I'm expecting I'll probably get some rude comment here or there. You know what? I don't care. I feel so comfortable within myself for the first time, so fuck them. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People-pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get. You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scottface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. To vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Callie Estes, uh, and you are an addiction specialist. You, I am. You, um, I didn't catch you off guard with letting you know you are one. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> oh not. Oh, my God. <laughs> After 25 years, my, I hope not. <laughs> my God, I am. I never thought about that. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is you, uh, a lot of your clients are high-profile people, powerful people, CEOs, celebrities, uh, mostly male, you were yes. saying? Yep. Um, give me some stories that you think exemplify the state of recovery as an industry and ways where exploitation is happening. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example. I have a client in the Hollywood Hills, obviously not going to give you any names or anything, mm-hmm. but she's got two people living with her. She pays all the bills. Um, she's trying to get sober from alcohol, and they're throwing party after party after party. Because of who she is, it's an A-list party, in and out, in and out. And, and who is they, the people living with her? Correct. So they're, they're living on her dime, living in her house, convincing her that she needs them as a personal assistant and a PR person and such and such. And without them, she would not be who she is. And because she... Does she believe that herself or do they tell her that? They tell her that. And because she's drinking and because she feels low self-esteem and low self-worth because she's been in the tabloids, they convince her they're going to fix this. And she buys into it. And they bring more alcohol in and they keep her stuck. When they keep her stuck, they can use her credit card. They can live in the house. They can have people in and out. They can take pictures with them. They can post it on Instagram and they feel important, which is what you see in the celebrity culture. People want to ride the coattails of those that have already made it, especially if there's money and fame involved. And they do it at the, the famous person's expense because they keep them stuck. They keep them sick to allow the behavior to continue. If she was sober and her head was in the right space, she would never allow that to happen. She would see that these people are users. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And then she'd have to deal with her codependency issues. Correct. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. But to stay drunk, it seems normal. And, And whether it's conscious or not on the part of the friends, I would imagine that they want her not only to to so they can have people coming in and out and post pictures on Instagram but uh, i would imagine they want that feeling that they are more powerful than her that she's in a state of distress so that then they are needed correct one even poses as her sober companion so he takes her to certain events however he keeps her liquored up enough that he brings her home and he stays at the event so this is his meal ticket into an event, a meal ticket into something to start up because he can't be her. He can't attain that level. But if he can stay close to her, maybe someone in Hollywood will pick him up as an actor or maybe someone will see his worth. So I deal with that. Sometimes I get called in for those situations by agents that say, hey, this person isn't showing up for work and they're going to lose their show or they're going to lose whatever it is. Sometimes it's family members. I had a family call me that was on the West Coast or on the East Coast in West Palm Beach and her daughter was out here and couldn't reach her daughter. And she said, I think she's getting taken advantage of. Her personal assistant is blowing through her bank account. The trust fund is just dwindling and she hasn't performed in two years because she's drinking and doing drugs. And I come out and I get there and I'm like, wow. You know, the personal assistant has taken full advantage. The financial advisor has taken advantage. And I sit there and I'm thinking to myself, this is crazy. What you're doing to somebody, keeping them sick, keeping them stuck so you can spend their money and you can live vicariously through them. And I'm known as the disruptor. I come in, I disrupt the situation, kick out the assistant, kick out the people, and I work one-on-one with the client. And I get them in the right headspace, and I get them sober, and I get them to say, this is what's going on. We've got to make these decisions. We've got to fix these problems that are happening, or you're going to be completely broke, and it has been when you wake up four years from now from your addiction. And how difficult is it um, kicking the people out? can be very it can be very difficult is the client fighting you on it sometimes because they're so convinced that they're what they think is their friend is there to help them Mm -hmm. um sometimes it's a mother you know it was a child star and the mother's riding the coattails of their daughter and at every event and sleeping with everybody and when the daughter starts drinking or doing drugs they want the daughter fixed but not too fixed because if the daughter's totally fixed she won't want mom around you know with her bad behavior so it's, it's a delicate situation, but it's also a sad situation because the money and the power taints everything. Talk about the, um, the inner life of somebody who is famous and the public sees them and thinks, man, they've got it made. What don't they know about oh. many of these people? Okay, so let me start here. Most of the women find themselves unattractive. So you look at them on TV and go, oh my God, she's perfect. She has the perfect face and the perfect body and all this money and the most beautiful husband. She's amazing. And when you see her, her hair's in a bun, she has no makeup on, and she thinks she's the ugliest person on the planet and she's starving herself because she thinks she's fat. I see that. I see, I hold people's hair where they're throwing up on the toilet in between acting and they're so drunk on stage or so high on stage that they can't perform. So you don't see those things. You don't see everybody sleeping with everybody. You don't see that. You don't see how so-and-so cheated on so-and-so and and it destroyed them. 
you know, they just say, oh, it's no big deal. And they move on because that's what the public wants to hear. They're resilient. They're amazing. They're so tough. And they're not. They're in pieces on the floor in a fetal position when I get there. So it's heartbreaking because it's like they have to have the, the public life, the public persona, and then their private persona is who they really are. And they can't be that in the limelight because it would destroy who you think they are. It's funny because in my opinion, it would make people love them even more because they would appear human. They would, but the fear of the tabloids taking that little piece they give and running with it, destroying them, keeps them from saying what they want to say. But what if they owned the story and mm -hmm. they put it out there? Then they, they have ownership of it. You're starting to see that. Celebrities coming out and saying, I'm in AA. I'm sober. This is how I got there. And people going, oh my God, he's sober? I thought he was using, or I had no idea he had a problem. And they're coming out saying, this is me, or I have a mental health issue, and this is what I'm doing. They're not afraid to talk about it anymore, which helps the rest of the population who's scared to talk about their problem. Yeah. And they say, oh, if so-and-so can say that they have this problem, I can do that too, which is excellent. What are the personality traits that you see uh, among people who are extremely successful, um, be it in business or entertainment or whatever? Show me, give me some of the patterns, um, common traits, uh, especially things that, that um, the rest of us don't see. Most of the men are narcissistic, self-absorbed assholes. They just aren't. They are all about money, all about power, all about which girl they're with or how many, uh, what they own, what their suit looks like, and it's a constant competition. It's a my dick's bigger than your dick competition, constantly. And they do that because they don't ever want to deal with a scared little boy inside. So I work in that arena a lot. I'll bring the scared little boy out. How do you do that? Depends on the person. I use sarcasm. I use a lot of analogy. I try to be funny and warm, but I also want them to know that no one buys their shtick. You know, you can act all you want. That's what you do as a job. But when you step off stage, if you're still an asshole, we need to talk about that because that's keeping you stuck and that's why you're drinking and that's why you're doing drugs and that's why you're hiring hookers and all this other nonsense that ends in the tabloids, which then causes you a problem. If we don't deal with that behavior, you're going to keep spinning in the same cycle. Mm -hmm. So I have, I address them with the hard questions. You know, how do you, where are you, where do you want to be, and how do you want to get there? And then let's do it. Let's process that and get there. Give me an example. Ugh. Okay, so I've got a client who's a famous actor who has been fired consistently because he comes to the set drunk and high and has a habit of trying to grope the women, the actresses, producers, it doesn't matter. And he's been consistently fired for inappropriate behavior, but he's a very, very good actor and he's very well paid. So I was hired to be the buffer. Could you teach him to behave on set? That's what they hired me to do. And I said, well, let's clarify what that means. And they said, we just want him to behave when he's filming. We don't care what he does in the rest of the time, but have him behave. So I started working with them. That's pretty gross that they, that they don't care what, who he's hurting once the camera stops filming. That's really fucking gross. It's, yeah, and it's all about money sometimes. Yeah. So if they're not producing and making us money, we don't want them. 
But if it's this actor that's so well liked by the public, we want them, but we don't want it here because we don't want to get sued. What he does, you know, at five o'clock is up to him. So I have to come in with that moral dilemma of, can I make this happen? And then I sit down with them and I say, this is inappropriate at work. This is inappropriate in personal. This has to change totally. I don't want to just see it change at work. You've got to change this in personal or you're going to get sued. You know, the whole Me Too movement is out there. You're going to be part of that and you're going to have a problem. Yeah, and we, I have to have those conversations. Yeah, and it sounds like it's beyond even inappropriate that it's criminal. It could be, yeah. yeah. I've, I've been on a few of those where there's clients that have been arrested and that are facing some sort of problem going, can you fix this? Mm-hmm. And I always say, I can't fix bad behavior. I, I cannot control human behavior. I can give you the toolbox. I can give you the tools. But if you sit down and prop your feet up on the toolbox, the house isn't going to get built. You have to yeah. build the house. Yeah. So I do my best with that. Yeah, I love that uh, analogy. Yeah. Uh, so uh, going back to this person, mm-hmm. um, break it down. What uh... First day on set, we're in the trailer, and he comes in completely wasted. It's 6 o'clock in the morning. Hasn't slept. Was at the strip club all night. Hasn't showered. Um, so the first thing I did was go and say he's not going to work today. And they said, we has to. I said, he's not going to. He's drunk. He stinks. He is a complete shit show. It's absolutely not going to happen. And if you don't want people groping him, best probably not to have him drunk. Correct. So I said, what we need to do is take the day off. He needs to sleep it off. And as soon as he's sober, I'm going to work with him. So it's about six, seven hours later. He's sober, hasn't showered. He's a complete mess. I said, we're going to start doing some work. And he says, I need a drink. I said, you need detox. No drink. You need detox. We're going to detox you. Well, I'm not going to detox. Yes, you are. It's not an option. He goes, well, you're fired. I said, you can't fire me. You didn't hire me. You're stuck with me. Unless you want to lose your job, you're stuck with me. So we went through that conversation. He called me all kinds of names, the B word, the C word, the F word. None of it phased me. I said, okay, let me know when you're done. And he says, fine. I said, now we're going to detox. And I told him he needs three days off, possibly five. We're going to detox. And I forced him into detox. And the show was angry because we have to hold up now for, for this. And I said, well, your other option is he's going to continue down the same path because some of these people don't understand addiction. You can't just waltz me in and I have a little conversation and all of a sudden the bad behavior stops. Right. We have to get him sober first. You're, sober. You're, you're essentially dealing with a frightened child in an adult body and you're trying to take their toy away. Exactly. And they get angry. I've had a laptop thrown at my head. I've had spices. I had one person picking at their spice rack, throwing every spice. And finally, they ran out of spices. And I said, are you done now? And she stopped and went, I think so. And I said, sit down and let's go. And she didn't know what to do with that. And I said, that's what I do. I disrupt the bad behavior. So I love working with the client because I know what I'm going to get. It's hard working with the agents and the personal assistants because they don't understand the addiction and they don't understand the process that this is going to take a while. This is not a 24-hour fix. This is not a Band-Aid. This is a lifestyle change. And it's not about reasoning Oh yeah, with people. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions, especially among codependents, is they think, if I can just get them to see. Yes. So what is it that cracks open? that shell of defiance in the addict, the denial. Everybody's different. For some, it's the, I'm losing everything. I'm, I've just gotten fired. If I get fired, I can't pay the rent. I can't pay the mortgage. If I can't pay the mortgage, I'm going to lose my trophy wife. If that happens, I'm really screwed. 
So when I'm dealing with a doctor or a CEO, I sit them down and I say, as a doctor, you're gonna lose your medical license. And I say, I need you to repeat after me. And they always say, what? And I say, do you want fries with that? And they say, why? Because that's the job you're gonna get when you get fired from malpractice and you kill somebody. You're gonna go to prison. That's what's going to happen to you. And they don't get that. So it's that conversation of this is real. And then with the CEO, you're gonna lose your company. That's your baby, you built that. You know, what are you gonna do? There are very few jobs for high-powered CEOs out there. It's a long time to get that kind of an income. What are you gonna do in the meantime? Or you're gonna lose your wife. You're gonna lose your house. So I sit down and I talk about- so you're gonna die. Yeah. I talk about all these things that are going to happen if you continue doing what you're doing. Or you could try sobriety. And I always say this, I'm not gonna ask you to get sober for a lifetime, I'm gonna get ask you to get sober for 30 days. And if you don't like it, go right back to doing what you're doing. Because the drugs will always be there, the alcohol will always be there, the women, the men, whatever, will always be there. But give it a 30 day shot and see if something changes. And then within 30 days, things change. And they go, oh wow. Number one, I'm not hungover. Number two, I'm not spending all day trying to find the dope man, which, it blows their mind. They're like, oh my God, heroin is a full-time job. It is. So it's the getting up and it's the trying to find the money and trying to get it and all day long, just nonsense. And they say, I don't have to do that today. I have free time. It's amazing. You know, or I had a conversation with my kids. I, I remember what I said and they're shocked. I'm like, wow, isn't that amazing? So I let them have those little wins. And then I say, okay, you did 30 days. Let's see if we can do 45. How does that sound? Okay, I can do 45. And then we, we have a next marker. Okay, how about 60? Next thing you know, they've got 90 days sober and they're going, oh my God, I've been sober for 90 days. They have no idea it's been 90 days. Then it's like, okay, let's try 100. And then they go, okay, I'm gonna stay sober forever. And I'm like, okay, well, hang on. Let's keep little, little tiny, mm -hmm. you know, milestones because as soon as you go forever, I can never have that again. Your brain goes, uh-oh, that's a problem. Yeah. So I don't like that. Let's just keep going until it's been a year and then it's two and then you go, I'm never going back, why? And everything's changed. So that's how I do it. And what happens internally in these people? Where, where is the, the change? You know, one of the reasons I'm a big fan of 12 steps is because a lot of internal changes happen. A lot of tools are developed to deal with the anxiety and the fear and the anger and the selfishness. It's exactly what we do. So as a coaching perspective, we talk about where are you stuck? What is your action plan? We do different exercises like circle of influence. Who's your toxic people? Who's around you that's keeping you stuck? Who needs to go? We talk about your vision board. What do you want to create? What's your purpose in life? What's your passion in life? And so many people are stuck in roles they don't belong in. Well, I'm an accountant because my dad said I should be an accountant and I get high because I don't like doing taxes. Why are you an accountant? What else could you do? And it's getting them to think outside the box. Mm -hmm. And then processing if they have a trauma, if they have mental health, we get that evaluated. They may need a mental health medication. If they're bipolar and they're trying to get sober and as soon as they get depressed, they get high, let's address the bipolar. Let's mm -hmm. get you stable because then you won't reach for drugs if you're stable. It's amazing, yeah. you know? Just move that a little bit closer to your, to your mouth. Okay. okay. Um, in in my experience, the best recovery is where the anxiety, the fear, the selfishness, etc., is replaced by peace. Mm -hmm. um, because 
in my experience, when I'm in a peaceful state, I don't want to get high. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get drunk. And so finding tools to keep peace in my life, especially when there's turmoil or mm-hmm. disappointment or pain, is is the thing that I that I try to keep my eye on. What can I do to to not stay in this state that I'm in, to not be ruminating about something? Give me an example of a client you had that was, you know, as they stopped use, using their uh, alcohol or their drugs to soothe their feelings. Give me an example of where an issue came up and they had to develop a new tool to, to deal with. Okay, so I had a client where we were working on anxiety. His thing was every time he had a obligation, he got severely anxious and would medicate to get through the obligation. So I said, let's address the anxiety. Where's the anxiety coming from? And he would say, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So we started a therapeutic process where we went backwards in time. When you were five, were you anxious? Well, no. When you were eight, were you anxious? Well, no. And all of a sudden, when he hit 10, he said, yes. And I said, tell me where you were. He said, my mother, he said, my mother would, uh, his mother was borderline personality disorder. So she would change through different things. And whenever that dishes piled up, she'd have this meltdown, start screaming. So he started to associate anything overwhelming with screaming and yelling. So to avoid the screaming and yelling at all costs, he would drink a glass of wine at 10 years old from the cabinet Wow! to avoid her screaming. And he noticed when that would happen, everything was dulled. Her screaming and yelling was dulled. It was nice. He wasn't anxious. And then she could scream and yell and it didn't bother him. He carried that into adulthood. And I said, well, let's address that anxiety. Let's address that. And as we went back and processed that, and I said, you're not 10. No, now you're 35. There's no reason to be anxious over dishes. That's 10-year-old you. This is not 35-year-old you. You're not trapped in that house anymore. Exactly. You're not in that situation. You're safe. Now that you're safe, how can you handle the situation? What can we do? And it was all about pre-planning so the anxiety wouldn't go up. Well, if you do the dish every time you eat, you won't have a bunch of dishes and you won't be anxious. Okay, he said, if you put it in the dishwasher. And he started doing little things like that. And the anxiety never came up because it never got that far. He never let it get so overwhelming. He got to that point where he had to drink a glass of wine. And then we disassociated the anxiety from the mother. So it's also teaching him that the reason you were anxious was your mom and she's not here. So the anxiety is not real, it's perceived. There's perceived anxiety and real anxiety. When you were 10, it was real. When you're 35, it's perceived. You have internalized your mother and you hear your mother's voice in your head, that's not there. So it's disassociating that and getting him to realize he's safe and take a deep breath. Um, I taught him meditation, we went to yoga class and he learned how to balance himself every time he felt anxious instead of reaching for wine. And eventually he said, I don't need the wine. The wine doesn't center me. I center me. And when I center me, the dishes don't matter. They're just dishes. And he realized that wasn't his problem. His problem was he was making all this stuff in his head crazy. So he would drink. And once he stopped doing that, the drinking stopped. So that's what I do. It's, it's mind-blowing when you realize 
as an addict, it's not the drinking, it's the thinking. Yeah, yeah. The drinking is your solving your problem. It's your solution to your problem. And that's where a lot of treatment centers go wrong. They address your drinking. They don't address your problem. They say, well, you need to stop drinking and doing drugs. That's your problem. No, it's not. That's your coping skill to deal with your problem. What's your problem? Something I see happening uh, a lot in Southern California are these uh, rehabs that cost tens of thousands of dollars. Um, And, you know, there's a personal chef and there's this and that. And I always think to myself, that seems counter to what you want the person trying to get sober to experience. If you're trying to get this person to experience humility and simplicity, um, what are your what are your thoughts on that? So this is a double-edged sword. What's happened is we got away from traditional treatment, which was 12-step based. You come in, you prepare your own food, you do your own laundry, you go to group, you're accountable. And we're now more into let me do that for you and you work on you. But we don't give them enough you time. You're not getting enough therapy. You're not getting enough coaching. You're not getting enough of those things. And we're pampering you in the process. So some of them are designed to fail. And they're designed to fail. So the person goes out, relapses, comes back in. We do it again. Yes. And they don't get kicked out when they relapse in there. Which to me, somebody had wanted to advertise on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And it was a rehab. And I asked them, I said, when somebody uses in your rehab... What do you do? And they said, well, we believe in second chances. And I said, I can't, I can't advertise because if an addict isn't given consequences, it's not going to, it's not going to take. That's my personal belief, but I'm sure other people disagree with it. Well, to your point, it's worse than just that. So there's certain things, and I was a director of a rehab in Davie, Florida that since sold and the original owner is who I worked for. And his policy was keep them happy at all costs. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I said, well, we're not teaching them accountability. And he said, yes, but we're losing revenue. This is a business young lady. And I said, how the fuck does that person live with themselves? Well, he sold it for $13.1 million. And I said to him, we're not teaching them. We're doing them a disservice. And one day I counted out of the 45 people, how many had come through. Our relapse rate was 55% because we gave them what they wanted and they didn't learn anything. They left, they used, they had a good insurance policy. So we brought them back in and did it all again. And the rule was, well, you, since you didn't get it the first time, you obviously aren't ready. And I said, what? So you're telling me it's their fault? No, it's our fault. What are we doing wrong that we're not teaching them something? And after that, we had a difference and a parting of ways that pretty much ended with me telling him to go fuck himself because I said, I can't work here. This is not what I do. I teach accountability. I teach behavior modification. If I'm telling someone, it's okay, you don't have to cook your lunch. I'll do it for you. What are they learning? Nothing. You know, and if we allow them to curse at us, what are they do- learning? Nothing. And we allow mom to come in with fresh underwear and bake banana bread every Friday. What are we doing? Nothing. You know? So... That's happening. In addition to the relapse rate, it's let's pacify the addict. Let's pacify the person so they don't leave. We don't want bad customer service. Yeah, we do. 
if they're uncomfortable and hate me, I'm doing my job. Because <laughs> you're getting to the feelings exactly. under, underneath it. I, I had uh, somebody from a wealthy family, it was a, a mother, said, uh, you know, my, my child isn't staying sober. What's the most expensive rehab you know? And it just blew me away. Yeah. And, and I said, it has nothing to do with the money. In fact, it's often counter mm-hmm. to it. To it, beware of the expensive rehabs because they have a reason to want to keep you. I just sent a client. I got this phone call from a colleague, and he said, "I've got a 29-year-old." He goes, "I've got a 29-year-old entitled twat." I said, "I've got the program," and I sent them to a program that was sixteen thousand dollars cash pay nothing frills. You cook your own meals. You have to get up. You have to work on the farm. They have food that you have to grow. Day two, the kid calls me screaming, this is not for me. I said, yes, it is. That is for you. And he called his parents and I said, do not answer the call. You route everything through me. And these parents had tons and tons of money. And they said, what is he learning? I said, he's learning responsibility. He's learning accountability. And he, he's, we're fixing the bad parenting because he's learning. You cannot do that in this facility and he said he was leaving and it happens to be in the middle of the forest and in florida so it's like three miles of bear walking so he gets into the woods freaks out comes back running in and tries to call an uber the cell phone service doesn't work so it was absolutely incredible and the family called me and they're like he called today and said thank you it's the first time we heard this kid say thank you i said there you go so he had a moment of clarity he had a moment of oh shit i'm in the middle of nowhere (laughs) what am i gonna do and I better change my behavior to get myself out of this situation. So he had a few slip ups that, you know, bad behavior. And we said, every time you have bad behavior, we're going to extend your stay by 10 days. And that was like, you're what? Well, yeah, we're going to keep extending you until you learn this is not acceptable. This is not how we behave as an adult. And sometimes that's the kind of program somebody who's, who's entitled and affluent needs because they've never had accountability. Mom buys them out of this problem and dad buys them out of jail and they crash the car. We buy a new one. They drop out of school. We'll put them in a new school. We fix these problems, but they never learn they need to fix their own problems. And then mom and dad call me as a private coach and go, I don't know what to do with my 25 year old who's living in my house, who doesn't have a job, who doesn't have a girlfriend. What do I do? And I go, okay, I'll be there. I've got a parent and I do. I've got to come in and parent. I've got to say no. What are some of the dynamics that you see um, among the affluent clients that that you have? You talked about narcissism, um, them being materialistic. Mm-hmm. Um, when you begin to make progress with one of them, you crack the shell. Mm-hmm. They start to get a little bit of clarity. What do you often find underneath that not only in terms of their self-beliefs but maybe trauma or something from their past there's a lot of high expectations they never meet from mom and dad or family lineage it's expected they go to harvard it's expected that they're a doctor but they're not smart enough to cut it so they end up being you know a drifter and they pass it off as an artist, you know, so they never hit the bar. And the problem in the affluent 
community is that the moms and dads are trying to keep up with each other by using their children as the pawn. So one of my specialties is fair to launch. I get the kids from 18 to 28. Mom and dad set the bar so high, Junior couldn't hit it, so he just checked out and started using drugs and alcohol. And I sit down with mom and dad and I say, you have this unrealistic expectation of what he or she should be doing. That's the problem. You gave them so much pressure, all they know how to do is check out. It's too much. And I have to have that conversation. How's that received? It's usually not received well because I'm coming in saying, Junior's never going to be the doctor you insist him on being. He's going to be the drug addict if you keep pushing this. He wants to be, uh, for example, I had one that wanted to be a surfer. He wants to be a surfer. He's really good at surfing. That's about all he's good at. He's not good at accounting. You're pushing him to be an accountant. The kid can't balance a checkbook. I mean, he's never going to do it. And I have to explain to them, almost you're the reason he's in this position. You've got to back off. You've got to be supportive. That's tough, especially when you have a dad that's self-made. Well, I made all my money and I did all of these things and he should be, his last name is, you know, something, something Smith comma junior. He's the junior and he needs to be like me. Well, you don't own him. Yeah, you created him, but you don't own him. They use their children as property. Does that sink in? Sometimes, sometimes. Um, sometimes on the flip side, it's they don't want the person in the tabloids. So I might get the matriarch. I might get grandma who hires me who says, well, I have a 35-year-old grandson who crashed his car and now I'm in the news because he's a drunk. Fix it. Oh, that's tough because they don't care about the drinking. They care about the getting arrested part. And they can make the arrest go away, but it's already been um, their mugshot. For example, I had a famous celebrity who got stopped. Um, and during the stop, had an altercation with a police officer, put her hands on the police officer and got arrested because she committed battery on a Leo. And all she What's wanted... What's a Leo? A, Law enforcement officer. Oh, okay. Okay. So she, I was like, why do you, why does the uh, the zodiac sign of the, of the <laughs> yeah. person matter? Yes. So yes. she hired me to make it go away, and I said, you can't make it go away. We have to dress how you got there. How did this happen? You know. And she's like, well, she kept saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? As they're arresting her, and they caught that on the YouTube, and it's all over. And I said, we've got to fix this, you know, because do you know who I am? Nobody cares who you are, especially if you're in L.A. Everybody's famous in L.A. Nobody cares. But the bad behavior got you here. So how do we fix that? How do we address these issues? And they're uncomfortable issues. You know, you have to look at your behavior. And you have PR teams that sweep it under the rug. And you have legal teams that make it go away. And they expunge your record. But at the end of the day, you're still sitting there on the sofa with yourself. And that's why I'm here. So all that stuff can be addressed. And so what did you do with it with, with that person with that so we talked about low self-esteem we talked about aging in the industry that's a huge fear in the celebrity world is oh my god i'm getting old and it, i have a 21 year old that talks about getting old and she's getting botox and i'm like you're 21 it's you're not ready for botox you meaning uh, you have a, a child or a client i have a 21 year old client okay. who's in the industry the celebrity industry she's an actress that's a little old <laughs> yeah and she's got kidding of course yes. all this botox and i keep trying to tell her you keep doing this you're going to be so misshapen you won't get a job you know and and in her mind she's ugly 
So it's the reason she checks out with the opiates and the benzos is I feel ugly. Let's address why you feel ugly. You're in an industry that tells you 25 is old, you know, and you're, you need a facelift and you need a this and you need a that. We have to address that. And maybe you need a backup career. Maybe this isn't the right career. If this is the pressure that's going to lead you down this path, what else can we do? What other dynamics do you find at work besides the industry valuing youth, uh, et cetera? Um, is there stuff from their past, from their childhood? One of, one of the dynamics I see a lot in the uh, surveys that people fill out is the mother passing on her body and food issues to her child. Welcome to my mother. Yeah. That's where I got mine. Yeah. My mom was a foodie and she, and I'll give you my story, interject. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived with my mom and my grandma, my sister, and my grandmother, the way that they handled issues, because there was no alcohol in the house, it was a dry house, they would have all the women over and she would bake and she would bake enough for the entire neighborhood and they would come over and sit and have coffee and discuss whatever issue needed to discuss. Then my grandmother would go to bed, everyone would go home, and my mom would bring me down to the kitchen and we would eat all the cake, all of it. Whether it was one or 12, we ate all the cake and we'd sit there. And that was how she released stress. So that became normal. If you're happy, you eat. You're sad, you eat. You're mad, you eat. There's a problem, you eat. I learned that's what you do. And then when I was in college sitting on the floor, and I'll give you the visual, I had a cake on the floor. I had cake on my my face, cake on me, cake on the dog, cake on the wall, cake everywhere. And I was crying at two o'clock in the morning because I went out with all my friends and no guys ever liked me. And all my friends had guys. And my roommate came in and she's like, she goes, dude, what the fuck? And I said, what? And she goes, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, nothing, this is normal. And she goes, that is not normal. That's how I learned the first time I have a problem. Because to me, that was normal. Mom raised me, this is what you do. My mother just learned in the past 10 years, she's a food addict. She didn't realize it. She's like, I don't have a problem. There's no issue, this is what I do. Well. That happens a lot because a person doesn't deal with their own demons so they have a child and they, because they haven't handled their business, they pass it on socially, could be genetically depending, and that child picks it up and says, this is normal. This is the behavior I exhibit. So you can also see it with sex abuse and it doesn't have to be mother, son, mother, daughter, it could be father, daughter, it could be uncle. If there's a sexual trauma, that really changes the game for the addict because now they internalize something's dirty about me and I'm the reason they did that. I'm the bad person. And because I'm bad, I don't deserve to be happy, successful, or pretty, or nice. I don't deserve those things. And because I don't deserve those things, I'm going to get high because why not? I deserve nothing. So I see that in the celebrity industry a lot. Their self-esteem is so shot and it can even be in the industry. They're a childhood star that got molested in the industry as they were coming up and they were told you keep this quiet because you will lose your job. No one is going to want to hire you if you out so-and-so. And they do. And they do so much drugs and alcohol. Some of them have passed away. We've seen that. Or they numb out so much that they become a dramatic train wreck. And then it's bad press after bad press after bad press and they just disappear and fade out. And you see them 20, 30 years later, strung out and they're completely broke. And you're like, that's so sad. But no one ever helped them. What, give me an example of a trauma you were able to process with a client that was a revelation to the client 
and it helped give them the clarity to straighten their life out and develop coping mechanisms slash boundaries, whatever it was that... Okay. I was doing a private intensive with a client. I had him for 13 days, 24-7, where I was doing every day for about eight hours. We're doing therapy and coaching. And on the fourth day, he realized his mother was an alcoholic. He knew that. But he didn't realize how controlling she was and how everything he did was to please mom. And if she said no, he didn't do it, whatever it was. And as he started to realize that, he also realized she was physically abusive. She would hit him if he didn't do exactly what she wanted. She was bipolar and she was unmedicated bipolar. So as he's realizing this, he's reliving some of those moments and he's talking about these things and he's crying and he's there. And I said, let's just stop for a second. Look around. Is she here? And he said, no. And I said, you're safe. And it's teaching people in trauma to be safe. You're safe. You're okay. And letting go of all that stuff you keep carrying, you're carrying that all around. So the exercise I did with him was I had him get a backpack and I had him fill it full of books and I had him put it on. And as we were talking, I was walking with him around the room and about 30 minutes later, he's like, well, this backpack is really heavy. He's like, you know, how, when can I take it off? I said, you can't. And he says, what do you mean? I said, you're carrying all your mother's trauma in that backpack everywhere you go. And that is what you're doing. You're so weighed down with your mother's crap that you have not gotten rid of. And that is what's keeping you stuck. And he goes, well, I want to take the backpack off. I said, are you sure? Because once you take that backpack off, you've got to process that trauma and we're going to process it. And it's one book at a time. So we did. We started to process each layer of all the things she did one by one. And I let him take a book out of the backpack each time. And eventually we got to the bottom where the backpack was empty. I said, now you fill the backpack with your experiences and your happy things, not the traumatic experiences you had. You're safe. And that's how I got him through dealing with his mother. And she had died unexpectedly. She had a brain aneurysm. So he never got to say to her anything. I hate you or what did you do to me? He never got to have that conversation, which to him was horrendous because it was like, I finally realized you did this to me and I want to tell you how much I hate you and you're gone. And now I'm stuck. You left me like this. So he was always stuck and look what you did to me, but I can't get out of my own way to let you go. And then once he let her go, he realized he was like, oh my God, it's like this weight is lifted off of me and I don't have to be the person she wanted me to be. And I don't have to be stuck and I don't have to drink to drown her out because she's not here. And then he was able to be sober. So would it be fair to say part of that process is identifying the voices in your head that are your mother or your father or whoever and learning to identify them and telling them to shut the fuck up so that you can be the authentic person you are. Yes. I've done psychodrama with a client where you put the teddy bear in the chair and you have a conversation with mommy and you tell mommy everything you want to tell them and you should see the... I mean, it's real. People are there. They're there talking to mom. And it can be, I hate you. And I've had one curled up on the floor in the floor in a ball crying. And it was a teddy bear. It was so real to him that that was a mom. And I said, you know, it's teddy bear. It's okay. It's okay. And it's getting through that realizing, oh my God, this is me now. First, it was mom holding me back and doing this. Now it's me keeping me in this prison. Why am I holding myself back? And why can't I be free? Talk about the difference 
between identifying a perpetrator from the past so that we can give weight to our trauma and begin to process it and not moving past being a victim. Okay, so when you're dealing with sexual trauma specifically, or you're dealing with violent trauma, what happens is that person, the perpetrator, convinces the victim of certain things that aren't true. You're stupid, you're ugly, you're fat, you're the reason I do this. These are the things they say. So for example, my father always told me I was fat, stupid, and ugly. You'll never get a husband, you'll never go to college, no one will want to be with you. So by the time I was 14 or 15 and 16, I still hadn't Your had a Your father boy. said that to you? Oh yeah. My father was a motherfucker. And he's still alive. And I believed it. So my first boyfriend, I was 17. I was a senior in high school dating a freshman. Because in my mind, what senior would want to date me? I have to date a freshman. Because that's the only person that will ever want me. I'm fat, ugly, stupid. So I went through this consistently. I had no boyfriends in college. Four years of college. Five, because it took me a little longer. And then... I finally got a boyfriend who was crashing on my sofa because why would I get a a guy who had a job? I couldn't. I'm not smart enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not intelligent enough. No one wants to be with me, so I'm going to get the, you know, sofa crasher. And then it's reiterated when the perpetrator says, well, look, the best you can do is a junkie laying on your sofa. Look, look how stupid you are. You can't even get a guy with a real job. And you become the self-fulfilling prophecy. You give them what they tell you you are. And then when you realize you're feeding into that, my aha moment, I was 24. I was in my room and I called my father and I had had enough. And I said, I want to know why you abused me as a child. And I'm studying psychology. So I'm learning all this stuff. And he goes, I never abused you. And I said, yes, you did. I had an ashtray. I was a smoker at the time. And I threw the ashtray against the wall and I went, I'm as violent as my father. I stopped and I went, oh my God, I'm becoming the perpetrator. And my father goes, you want to know why I did what I did? I said, yes, because I hate your fucking mother. And I went, what? And I said, explain. And then he told me, he says, I hated your mother and my way to get to your mother was through you. And as soon as he said that, I was like, I don't need you and I don't need your bullshit. I hung up the phone. I didn't speak to him for 10 years. And I spent the next 10 years fixing me. And he would call. I'd ignore it. I don't want to talk to you. I'm not ready. When I was ready, I called him. I said, now I'm ready to talk to you. Because now your crap is not my crap. It's your crap. And you're going to own it. And he didn't like that. He's like, well, I don't, I don't, you don't speak to me like that. I said, okay, then don't call me. And hung up. Another five years of no talking. So I learned I didn't need him. And I didn't need to hear the, the negativity. And I teach my clients that. What they tell you, what your perpetrator tells you, is not real. It's perceived. And it's their opinion of you. And oftentimes, it's them projecting their own shame and thoughts about themselves onto you. Exactly. So my tagline is, your opinion of me doesn't matter. Because I don't care about what you think about me. Because whatever you have to say about me negatively is how you feel about you. And once I learned that, and it wasn't me, it was him, I was like, wow. He felt so bad about himself that he couldn't deal with it that I was his punching bag. Now, for me, it gets worse because he really likes my sister. He helped pay for her wedding. He helped pay for her house. He, he takes really good care of her and gave me nothing. You know? So I also had that. I was like, why am I, you know, why am I on the low on the totem pole? And then I went, really has nothing to do with me. 
And when I realized that, I was free. I was like, this isn't about me. This is about his crap. Mm -hmm. And once I got that, I was like, holy shit. Like, you know, and that was years of therapy and years of coaching. And that experience helped me be a better counselor because now I can look at a client and go, hold up. That's not you. That's them. And you're allowing them to affect you. Why? Why are you allowing them to rent space in your head and not pay? They're renting space for free. Why? And then people go, you're right. Wow. And when they start to look at things from an observer role and not in it, they start to realize how fucked up it is. And they say, how do I, how do I fix that now? And that's what we start doing. We start talking and getting that stuff out. And as it starts to come out, my therapist had me write a letter to my father. She said, sit down and write. My first letter was 26 pages. I wasn't allowed to send it. She goes, how do you feel? I said, eh. She goes, do it again. My next letter was my 50 pages. How do you feel? Eh, do it again. My third letter was 300 pages. She says, how do you feel? I said, vindicated. She goes, burn it. And I burned it. And when I burned it, it was like letting him go. And I'm like, whoa, like this is heavy. So I do that with my clients. I'm like, we're going to get all that shit out and you're going to let it go. And it's going to go. Once it's gone, you don't need it. You're free. Why do you need that? So that's what I do. <clears throat> One of the things that, first of all, thank you for sharing uh, sure. all of that personal stuff. One of the things that I realized when I did the <clears throat> talking to the person as if they're in the room mm -hmm. is, or journaling, is you think you know how you feel about something, but when you have to form a sentence, oh, yeah. it is a doorway that yeah. opens up stuff that is almost unconscious yes. sometimes. Things that we've compartmentalized, and it can be so, so powerful. Uh, talk to the person who can identify that they have a parent who is abusive, but they are either, or if, if not even abusive, there is a dread involved in interacting with them. When their number comes up on the phone, their stomach drops, or they just want to go take a nap. Talk to that person who can't bring themselves to address or set boundaries with this person or doesn't know what to say to that parent to advocate for themselves. Okay, so the first thing is there's a fear. There's a fear if I talk out of turn, I'm going to get scolded or I'm going to be in trouble. So the unique thing is that parent needs you to set the boundary. They need you to put your foot down because they will continue to push, push, push until you push back and it shifts everything. So I have a female client who's the oldest of two, alcoholic, also a sex addict, and her mom tells her every day, I hate you. You're, if, 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 you should not be on this planet. And she's in her mid-30s. And I'm, she talks to her like she's trash. And at Christmas, she's not invited, but the younger sister is. They take these vacations, don't invite her, and she has a son. They treat the son like their son. So what I told her was, I want you to tell your mother that's not appropriate. That's all I want you to say. That's not appropriate. I won't allow it. And she looked at me and she goes, my mother's going to flip. I said, you let her flip. You tell her that's not appropriate. I won't allow it. And you say it just like that. So they went on this vacation and she called me from the bathroom and I said, what happened? And she goes, I told my mother that's not appropriate. I won't allow it. I said, what happened? She goes, my mother went, it's about time you grew some balls. And her mom took a step back and started treating her with respect. And she goes, 
what happened? I said, your mother has been asking for you to set that boundary. Your mother has been asking for it by pushing, 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 and you have done nothing. By setting that boundary, you got your mom to back up and say, okay, finally, my job is done in that case. And I'm not going to treat you like a five-year-old anymore. I'm going to treat you like the 35 or 36-year-old you are. And that's part of what your parents need. Now, sometimes they'll say, oh, I can't believe you said that to me. How dare you talk to me like that? That well, seems to be more the norm. Yeah. But, yeah. So when that happens, you say, well, unfortunately, you're being inappropriate with me and I'm going to set a boundary. And this is our boundary. And I love you. And I can't talk right now. And you get off the phone. You set the boundary. Get off the phone. Let them process because it's new. If you set the boundary and stay on the phone, they're going to keep talking you out of the boundary. Yeah. And you want to just say, I love you. That's all I have to say. I'll call you later. Boundaries are not negotiable. Yep. Yep. Consequences are, are the best gift you can give somebody who is inappropriate because many of them don't even realize it. Yep. And you always say, I love you, mm -hmm. but that is it. And you hang up the phone. You set the boundary. You say, I love you. And you hang up the phone and you let them go and you continue to do that. What if you don't love them? Then you don't have to say that. You just say, you don't have to speak to me like that. And when you can speak to me better, we'll talk right now. That's it. Goodbye. Hang up the phone and you keep setting that boundary. That's inappropriate. I'm going to hang up the phone, hang up the phone. Eventually they will learn if they want a relationship with you, it's going to be on your terms, not theirs. And when they learn that, that's when the respect kicks in. But you have to teach them that it's so uncomfortable for the victim to say, I've got to teach this person boundaries. The minute I taught my dad boundaries, I'm not going to answer your call when you're having a meltdown. My dad's severely bipolar. He would call me and say, I don't know why I'm alive. Call your therapist. Don't call me. Well, you're a therapist. You should fix me. Not my job. Wow. <laughs> not all the money in the world could pay me to do that. So it's not only am I going to be nasty, I'm also going to expect you to answer the phone. And I set that boundary. I'm not your therapist. Get a therapist. Pay for a therapist. I'm not going to do that. And eventually, he stopped calling me with those issues because he knew I wasn't going to deal with it. I'm going to hang up the phone now. You'll figure it out. Talk to the person who has somebody in their life that they feel if they don't give them what they want, that person is going to take their life, take their own, their own life. The, uh, the, the boyfriend or girlfriend that is like, you know, if you were to ever break up with me, I, I'd jump off a bridge. Or the okay. parent who's, you're the only reason I'm alive. So two separate things. The boyfriend or girlfriend is very tricky because that is a very sick situation. My suggestion, my best advice for that is that you get yourself a therapist immediately and possibly one for that other person. And you say to them, I want to go to couples counseling. I want to address this issue because two things, when they start telling you that it could be a double homicide, they're going to kill you first and kill themselves. That's the direction, like the, the finality of that. And it's a real, so if you break up with them and they say, well, I, they don't want you to see anyone else. They're going to kill you and kill themselves. Now, does it always happen that way? No. There are people that say, well, I'm going to kill myself just because I don't know what to do with you and that's what I say to keep you. But you, if you're in that situation, you're codependent with that person. You need to address your codependency on them and why you're there and why you feel you need to be there. You also need a support team. 
because you may need a restraining order, you may need a whole bunch of things besides yourself. Do not do that alone, get help. Now, the mother who says to the child, you know, I don't know why I'm here, you're the only reason I'm here, if you were something were to happen to you, I don't know what I would do. There's a, a dr dramatic piece to that of I need attention, and there's a piece of I don't know who I am because my only role and function in life is mom, and that's all I identify with. That kind of a thing is, oh, mom, you really need a hobby. You need to go out with the girls. I was just going to say the same thing. You need to go get a massage. You need to find a day spa. You need to go to Vegas with the girlfriends. You need something else besides junior. If junior is your only function in life, you have no life. And it's abusive to put that much pressure on your child. Oh, yeah. It, you'll see that with the affluent community a lot. They become the mom who has the butler and the chef and the maid isn't cooking and cleaning for the family. And she's the stay-at-home housewife housewife mom so her only function is mom and the kids turn 18 and fly the nest and she completely has a meltdown because what do I do now and then she's chasing them all over the country and calling them every day and did you go to the bathroom and did you wash your laundry mm -hmm. and they end up using drugs to block her out and then she goes oh I have a function my child's an addict yay I feel important so it's important if you're having that you set that boundary with mom and dad and of course offer to get them a coach or a therapist Talk to the person who has experienced that, where the person threatened to kill themselves, and that person did. Ooh, that's tough. So if you feel, okay, first of all, you're never responsible for anyone else's behavior. That's the first thing. Anybody who's killed themselves and said it's your fault, it's not your fault. That's a choice they made based upon their life. Now. You absolutely need a therapist to process that. That's grief and loss. And it's also guilt and shame because you go, what could I have done differently? What did I do wrong? And if it's history of trauma, it becomes, was I a bad boy? And you go back through your entire life and go, I did all these things wrong and I could have saved my mother. Well, no, you couldn't have. Your mother was going to do this irregardless. She just happened to pin it on you as the last hurrah on her way out to destroy you. But you need a therapy, you need a grief and loss therapist for that. And maybe e even EMDR, which is the mm -hmm. eye movement, where you're not talking consistently about that. You're actually getting to some of it. Talk about the difference between you're not responsible for other people's behavior and the addict who is triggered into using because of the the parent or or is stuck in the cycle because of the because of the parent because on the surface you would say well that's an example of somebody somebody's behavior mm -hmm. somebody being responsible or what looks like being responsible for somebody else's behavior so I'll give you an example of a client and I'll tell you what we did I had a 26 year old male living with his family his dad was a very famous musician and the problem was his father was very successful the son was not successful everything he put his hands on failed miserably I felt so bad for the kid he's doing heroin he's doing Xanax like crazy he has no friends and dad is constantly you're this and you're that and you just you know you disappoint me so he just keeps getting high drown out dad 
So the very first thing we did... But, but he's getting high successfully. Correct. So, so he's, he did he's, something. He's did one thing. Let's give the kid credit. He, that, he, you know what? You're right. He put yes. his mind to something. He yes. did a good job. Yes. So the first <laughs> thing we did was pull him out of the house and put him in. He went to detox, went to treatment, and then we did sober living. And the reason for that was dad wasn't there barking in his ear. That was the first change. And then from there, it was empowering him. And telling dad, I need you to spend the next few months not talking to him. I need you to use me. So I was the buffer. And his dad would call me screaming, oh, he's only got 10 days clean. Well, that's 10 days. He has 10 days. We're going to flip that. And I would tell dad, we're going to flip that and say, wow, he has 10 days clean instead of what you just said. And I had to coach dad on his behavior. So what I do is I take the client out of the situation and I work with dad. And I put dad in his place and say, basically, this is what I tell them. You're the reason he's getting high. You have 25 years of bad parenting. You're screaming at your child. And when he does something well, like 10 days sober, you discredit that. 10 days sober, you should have said, that's amazing. You've got 10 days. Kids never had 10 days. So why are we not celebrating that? And he says, well, it should be 10 years. And I looked at him and I said, my God, I completely understand why this kid gets high. And he just looked at me and I said, you've got to own your behavior. So then I work with the parent and I say, you know, you have these behaviors that are causing a chain reaction. You have this unrealistic expectation that your son should be this amazing musician like you. And he doesn't want to play an instrument. He wants to be an artist. He wants to paint. And every time he paints, he was a real good artist, by the way, you would tell him how stupid it was. In fact, his dad took, took a gallon of paint and ruined all his paintings. Just threw it all over. Jesus. Because he said, you need to be a musician. And I said, why? And he said, well, that's what my dad did for me. I said, look how you turned out. <laughs> How'd that work? Yeah. That worked great because he sat yes. there and he goes, what the fuck does that mean? And I said, that means you're angry, you're narcissistic, you're abusive, and your son went the opposite direction. I said, your dad was probably just like you. And he went, he was. I said, did you like your father? He goes, I hated him. I said, why do you think your son's using drugs? And he goes, he hates me. I said, probably. You treat him like garbage and expect him to be successful. So... In these situations, it's the family member that needs the counseling and the coaching. And I got dad to change his behavior. And when dad's behavior changed, the son was totally different person. And I said to dad, have this kid put his art in a gallery. I mean, this stuff is amazing. And it was incredible. And his dad actually eventually went to an art gallery and, and his son had a, a show and got to see his work. And he's like, should I be proud? He would call me and go, what should I be doing? I'm like, you should be proud. And he goes, well, what if I'm not? I said, then you fake it. You tell your kids you're proud. Even if you're not proud, that's what you do. That's parenting 101. Yeah. So he's like, and then throw the paint on it. Nope, no paint. <laughs> you are banned from that. <laughs> uh, so at what point, though, is the addict responsible for their addiction even though their parent is triggering them that you know the yes the, the parent may have instilled this trauma in the kid that mm -hmm. is making it difficult but let's say that you know that kid's 21 now they're an adult mm -hmm. they're autonomous mm -hmm. theoretically mm -hmm. um what what responsibility do they do they have? Because we we can't blame it all on the parent. I believe that we can look at it as a trigger, mm -hmm. but isn't it up to that addict? Absolutely. To not tolerate 
that Once behavior. I give you new coping skills. Now you become accountable for your addiction. Up to the point where you don't know what else to do, mm -hmm. I'm going to say you're not responsible. The disease of addiction has taken over. But once I give you coping tools and mechanisms, it's just like sitting there with your feet on the toolbox. That house isn't going to get built if you're sitting there with your feet on the toolbox propped up. I need you to open the toolbox and pull out the hammer and pull out the nails and build the house and try something else before you get hot. So that's when I see accountability. So now you have a trigger and instead of reaching for drugs and alcohol, you go to a meeting. That's excellent. Now you've done some of the work. If you have a trigger and instead of going to a meeting, you get high, I'm going to say to you, well, we talked about this, you know, and your new coping mechanism was to go to a meeting. Oh, well, I didn't look. I don't know where they are. They're too far away. Now we got to talk about accountability. You have all these excuses and zero action. Yes, this is no longer your parents' Correct. fault. Because now you have the coping skills and the tools and you're choosing not to use them and playing the victim, I'm not going to permit that. Yeah, And I also believe that there are many uh, addicts who uh, came from wonderful childhoods, and I just believe they were genetically born addicts or, or alcoholics. That's my husband. Yeah? My, now you're going to love this story. So I didn't get married until I was 34, because obviously I'm fat, ugly, stupid, according to my father. <laughs> and my husband, um, his father is, was at the school, like the dean of schools. He ran all, he, all, he ran all these schools. Mother was a school teacher. Oldest son works for NASA, built spaceships. Youngest son is a doctorate in psychology for the school system. Tim, my husband, graduated high school, had a baseball scholarship, left it, left Florida, came to L.A. to be a musician, spent the next 20 years or so, 15, 20 years, doing drugs, traveling around, tattooed, pierced. And his father said to me, I don't get it. We had dinner every night at five o'clock. We took family vacations. We never argued. He had the best education on the planet. How did he end up arrested? He has 24 felonies and 14 misdemeanors from his addiction. How did that happen? What did I do wrong? I said, let me ask you a question. He said, what? I said, tell me about your parents and your wife's parents. And his parents, it's fine. When I was talking to Tim's mom, she says, well, she says, my father. My father reminds me of Tim. And I said, tell me how. And she said, he could drink. And he was 90, driving around with women all over. And he, she said, he could drink anything. And I said, do you think he was an alcoholic? And she says, I think so. And I said, there's your genetic. I said, your son has the gene. And she goes, because we did everything right. And I said, yeah, you could do everything right. And you could have mm -hmm. that. And Tim has a lot of ADD. And I said, was he very, your father, was he very into all kinds of stuff? She says, oh my God, he started a project here, forget it, start a car here, and started over here, and he was all over the place. And I said, yeah, that's your son. Your son is just like your father. That's straight genes. And she goes, I didn't know that was possible. And I said, it is. Absolutely. I said, how did I not turn out worse? I said, with my upbringing, I should have been a complete, you know, at 16 with 10 kids with, you know, mm -hmm. different fathers and no education. I said, how did that happen? And she goes, boy, I don't know. And I said, genetics. I said, I don't come from alcoholics and addicts. I, you know, I'm food addicts, but we never had alcohol. We never had access to it. Nobody did. So we talked about that and it really shocked her. And I said, that's a lot of what I do. So when I'm working with someone, I'll say, you know, what was your upbringing? Like, oh, it was great. It was wonderful. Okay, let's go back. 
We talk about the uncles and the aunts because there's always one, whether it's a sex addiction no one talked about, alcoholism no one talked about, and they're always like, oh my God, uncle so-and-so. Yes, when he would come over, he was always drunk. Or so-and-so, he was always on some narcotic or some pill. Isn't that just Christmas? (laughs) Yeah, Christmas and Easter. Before church or after church, right in there. Uh, Would it be fair to say that Looking at the root causes of somebody's destructive behavior um, isn't as important as identifying what the triggers are today that they need to deal with and develop tools for. Exactly. So if you if you figure out your triggers, so let's say your trigger is, I'll give you an example. I had a client who, she couldn't buy groceries. In Florida, you can buy um, beer and wine in the in the grocery store, and she couldn't buy groceries because every time she would buy groceries, she'd buy wine. And I said, "What's you know what's the trigger?" She goes, "I don't know. Shouldn't be." Well, we went together and found out that you know how you go to the grocery store and they have the bakery. She'd go in the morning, you could smell the cookies. Well, the cookies and the alcohol went together because her and mom would bake a drink. So she'd smell the cookies and go, I need a drink. So we switched up her grocery time, which stopped the trigger. The problem was we never dealt with the trauma with mom. So sometimes she'd be at a restaurant and the trauma would trigger with, you know, a woman would walk by that looked like mom or spoke like mom and she'd have to have wine. So even though we got the trigger with the cookies down, we didn't get the trauma. Once we got the trauma down, now she could go out anywhere in the world and there was no trigger. Because the trauma, the root cause was taken care of. How often do you have a client where there is no co-occurring mental illness or any trauma in their past? A lot, because I do behavior modification. So I'll get people who learned behavior. No, I mean where there isn't any um, mental illness or trauma in their past. Oh, a, a lot. lot. A lot? Yeah. Oh, that's surprising. I get, well, the younger set, the younger generation, there's no trauma sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they're 25 years old and everything's been done for them. So it's a learned behavior. I it's, see. I'm bored because I don't need to cook, clean, or do the laundry. Mommy does it. And everything's provided. So I don't need to work. So I'm just going to check out. I'm going to play video games, smoke weed, pop a couple zannies, and go hang out with my friends. So that's a learned behavior because you're bored. So we need to figure out your purpose and passion in life. And we always start with, is there trauma? Is there addiction in the family? What's causing? And if there isn't, and it's that, then it's behavior modification. So because I specialize in that failure to launch concept, I get a lot of that, where it's all behavior mod, where it's, okay, mom's got to cut you off. Mom is not going to do your laundry at 25. I had a 45-year-old whose mom came to his apartment, opened up the apartment, came in, gathered his laundry from around the house, took it to her house, washed it, folded it, pressed it, brought it back, and put it and hung it up. And to her, that's love. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I said, he's 45. Do you want him to get a wife? And she said, yes. I said, no woman in her right mind would touch your son like that. You have got to stop doing his laundry. She goes, oh, well, who's going to do his laundry? He'll figure it out. Him, he's 45. So that was behavior modification. He just figured, I don't need. And mom would put money in his bank account. Mom paid for his rent. So he didn't work. He literally was laying on the sofa when she'd come in and get the laundry. <laughs> and she's like, he needs to, something needs to happen. Or and not I'm, happen. <laughs> yeah. So in that case, it was, I need you to give your house key back to your son, and I need you to change locks. Mom does not belong in this apartment. We're going to teach mom some tough love. 
So that's how it started. And then I came to visit him two weeks later and he had no clean clothes, everything all over the floor. And I walk in and he says, I'm overwhelmed. And I looked at him and I said, really? You're overwhelmed. And he says, I can't handle this. I'm going to have a meltdown. I said, no, you're going to pick up that laundry bucket and we're going to go do laundry together. And I showed him how to do laundry. And he had to go use the laundromat in the in the condo complex. So he complained the whole time. I have to carry this down two flights of stairs and I have to stand here and I have to load this. So it was four hours of him complaining. And finally, I told him to Cayente La Boca. I said, shut your mouth. And he says, why? I said, because you're not making this activity fun anymore. This could be so much fun. Laundry could be fun. And he goes, how's it fun? I said, we're going to make it fun. And we made laundry fun. And sometimes it's all accountability and there's no trauma. In that case, it was codependent mom who needed to be cut off mm-hmm. from her son. Some, some great uh, advice and insight. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, let's plug your book. Sure. I married a junkie. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. So four years ago, I got slammed on the internet by a competitor who posted my husband's criminal record and said, this person's a a therapist with a PhD. How could she help anybody? Her husband's nothing but a junkie. She married a junkie. And I went, I married a junkie. Let's do a book and put that out there. So we did. Four years in the making. It's all about our story. Um, his drug addiction, and he was um, into cocaine when I met him, um, cleaned up, totally clean, and then switched to heroin. And what it was like to be with somebody on heroin trying to do what I'm doing and how he got sober and how he has clean time, uh, that's what the whole book is about. And I imagine that you had to deal with any codependency issues you had. Oh, yeah. it's the first. See, I'm not codependent. I'm very... The first time I found out he was using, I locked him in the room and I said, listen, you're going to detox old school. And he goes, what does that mean? I said, I'm going to lock your ass in here and I'll see you in two days. Here's some Pedialyte. Here's some Gatorade. And he went, you're kidding, right? I said, you want to go detox? He said, no. I said, see you in two days. And I walked out. (laughs) And I called my friend and I said, I got to get a a coach immediately. She said, why? I said, my husband's doing heroin. So that's exactly what I did. Exactly what my clients tell my clients to do. This This is what I need to do. And then a part of you goes... Oh my God, he's going to die. No, he's not. No, he's not. And I just check on him, you know, and then I had my call my coach. Are you sure we're doing the right thing? You're doing the right thing. Keep doing this. So I had somebody, but I knew right away I got to make that phone call because I'm not going to be able to handle this myself. And even if he did die, it's not on you. Right. But I want to try everything I can to push him out there and make sure he gets the best care he can, which is what I did. And And he kept... And if, if, finish your thought. No, go ahead. And if he chose not to, then his give fault. him consequences. Yep. You move on to a, um, you move out or kick him out or whatever. We, we came to that moment. Yeah. We actually came to that moment. And I said, this is it. You either need to go on tour with a band and clean up. You need to get arrested or I'm filing for divorce because you're not going to clean up. And he looked at me and he goes, I guess I'll go back on tour. And we put him on tour and he actually cleaned up playing drums on tour that's amazing and he called me and he's like this sucks i'm like you're not coming home i don't want to see your ass until you've got 90 days sober goodbye i'll fly out and see a show and i'll fly home and the group the group he was with there was no drug use and he's like okay and then he called me and he's like i got it today's the day he's like i got it today and i'm like yeah can i come home no 90 days see ya click yeah and yeah. he's been sober for a while now? Oh, yeah. 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 He's got a couple years under his belt, but for a while there, it was like, wow. 
Wow. Yeah. I came home one day. I was on a business trip for 14 days and I came home and he's a drummer. So he's got two different drum kits. He's got the drum kit, um, Angel Bartolotta's from Dope. We have that. We've got Nikki Six's bass guitar. We have all this stuff. And it was all gone. And I walked in the house. I'm like, where's the equipment? He just looked at me and he's like, I'm in trouble. And I'm like, what happened? He's like, I went on a bender. I'm like, okay, now we're going to rumble. Now we got problems. Yeah. So he, he pawned it all and it was like, Oh shit, you know, and the first thing I did was call my coach and I'm like, let's go. Give me, give me, tell me what I need to hear because I need to hear it. And she was all balls out. She's like, this is what you're going to do. And I did, I listened, you know, I'm like, I got it. I know what I need to do. And I said to him, this is not how I live. This is not how we live. So you either want my lifestyle or you want your lifestyle, but you can't have both. And that realization for him was like, she's not fucking around. Because he's been married twice before, both of them addicts. Mm -hmm. And they would use and they would, you know, one would trigger the other and it was always a mess and I'm not a user. So for me, there was no other option. You don't get a hall pass with me. And he kept saying, he's like, he would say, I hate you. I'm like, oh, you could, I don't care. And then one day he called me, he called me a cunt. And I'm like, really? My father used to call me that. And that's when he heard my father's story. And he's like, your father called you? I mean, yeah, that's all you have? That's the best you've got? You better get sober because I'm Italian and it's not going to fly. And he, his eyes got huge and he was like, uh-oh. He's like, you're not fooling around. I said, nope, I'm not fooling around. No money, no bank card, no nothing. Good luck. I'll, I'll see you in 15 days. I'm going on a road trip. You'll be sober. And he ran out of money and he got sober. So I was very tough with him because that's what I would have told my client's family. This is what you're going to do. Consequences. Absolutely. Yeah. And finally he said, and this was his aha, aha moment when he was on tour. He's like, it dawned on me that this lifestyle that I was living sucked. He goes, it sucked. He goes, it was a full-time job. He goes, I'm always sick. I'm always dope sick. And he goes, I love to play music and it didn't ping my brain. I had no interest. He goes, now I'm out here playing and I'm like, wow, you know, I'm doing music and I love it and I love music and this is what I'm, this is what I do. I'm an entertainer. This is my role in life. And I'm like, yeah, no offense, but on air when you can't play drums, you suck. Yeah. That's so, a bad drug for a drummer. No, it was awful. And he's like, I thought I sounded good. I'm like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Callie, thank you so much for, uh, for coming. And, thank you. Uh, talking about such important stuff. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And once again, her book is I Married uh, a Junkie, and we'll put a link to it on the uh, on the website. Awesome. Thanks. You know, I, I had some reservations when we first uh, booked it because I was so afraid that I was going to book somebody who was an apologist for the enabling that goes on in high-end uh, rehabs. And I was prepared to not release the episode, and it was such a relief to hear early on in our episode that she does not subscribe to that and she, that she is alarmed at the state of uh, rehabs, especially a lot of the high-end ones. Anyway, I'll put links to all her stuff under show notes. This is a shame and secret survey I want to read. It was filled out by a woman who calls herself Top Banana in the Shock Department. She is... This, this one's a bit of a long one, so hang on with me while I... She's in her 30s, uh, identifies as I think I'm straight, but I'm beginning to wonder if I would be lesbian if it hadn't been for all the trauma and homophobia growing up. Uh, she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. 
ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I think my mother has borderline personality uh, disorder. Oh, and as far as gender, actually, it says, I feel like I don't know sometimes, but I identify as female because that's the sex I was assigned. Uh, I think my brother, mother has borderline personality disorder. She was emotionally intrusive, and one time when we were joking around, we licked each other's tongues until she realized we probably shouldn't do it. I was about six years old at the time. Mom would often walk in on me masturbating as a child and tell me to stop. I was around eight when I began feeling sexual feelings. She would shame me greatly and bring it up in public in order to humiliate me and enjoyed seeing me squirm with embarrassment. She would blame a yeast infection on my masturbating and say that if I stopped, it would go away. I suffered in silence until I couldn't stand the burning and itching anymore and had to crawl back and ask her to take me to the doctor, which she then did. I was around eight at the time. I never managed to keep from masturbating and felt very guilty afterwards. My stepfather would walk around the house in his outgrown man panties and an open bathrobe. He would stare at me and my sister's private parts without realizing the vibe he was giving out. I always felt uncomfortable knowing he washed our underwear. And by the way, this is, this is such a good example of what covert incest can look like. Um, I'm speaking particularly about this stuff from the, from the stepfather. The staring at someone's private parts without him realizing the vibe that he was giving off, even if he did realize the, the vibe that he was giving off, for somebody to feel sexually violated, there doesn't have to be touch or penetration or sometimes even words. It can just be the way you you know, the sexual energy you give off towards that, towards that child. Uh, I would often cover myself around him. I found his porn when I was nine or 10, which set off my sex addiction. I found privately developed pictures of him and other women when I was snooping around. One of them looked like she didn't want to be there. She had a very passive and shut off posture. When he introduced me to the internet, he showed me a chat room of a well-known evening paper. It later got known as a pedophile grooming chat and was shut down. Oh yeah, he he definitely knew what he was doing and this is, uh, yeah, at least covert uh, sexual abuse, if not overt. Uh, and continuing, I saw his search history and had to teach him how to hide his search results. I was 12. Wow, so let's just soak that in for a second. She was 12. I remember two occasions when I was 13 and 14 and had tight revealing clothes and he complimented me greatly on how nice I looked and squatted down to take pictures of me sitting down in my short summer dress. He never noticed if I cut my hair or did any other changes, only the sexual stuff. When I was 14, we went to Turkey on vacation and I started going out with a 25-year-old man who worked in a restaurant where we used to eat, and my stepfather allowed it to happen. I am glad that the 25-year-old and I only kissed and that I wasn't raped, but he could easily have abducted me as we were left unsupervised on the last day of our trip. When I was an adult, I found a nude picture of my stepfather's girlfriend on the computer we shared. She is only a few years older than me. 
Last time I visited his house, he had a video camera set up in his bedroom and pointed to his bed. I often felt like he meant well, but was unable to realize the vibes he was sending out. Um, and the thing I would say is whatever his intent was, you should process your feelings regardless and give weight to what you're feeling. Um, I have excused the guy who raped me last year because he meant well and had a moment of being impulsive. Today, I feel disgusted by the fact that I know my stepfather's sexual preferences, even though I found some of them out by snooping around as a child. I also feel disgusted by my mother's intrusive emotional blackmail and how she used to try and hug me when I clearly didn't want to and then guilt-tripping me for it. Yeah, that's that is... That is abuse, man, not recognizing a child's um, autonomy over their body, not listening to what they want, telling them, you know, that they're wrong for feeling what they're feeling. Uh, I had it done to me when I was a kid, and uh, it definitely affected how I view myself, how I view the world, how I view females. Um my ability to feel like I have a voice, um, autonomy over my body. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My mother would pull my hair, spank me, and throw me into my room to cry it out. My stepfather would lose control and spank me for whatever made him upset or just lift me up by holding my arms and shake me violently. The worst time was when I had missed dinner because I had gone with my friend to catch butterflies. When we came home, by, by the way, could that be more of like of a contrast i mean fuck that's that if i saw that in the movie i would i would think that's a little much and that's what's amazing about the surveys is the the you can't write some of this stuff and it's like painful poetry sometimes when we came home and went into my room, I could hear my furious stepfather run up the stairs and my heart sank. He sat down on my bed and tried to force me to lay across his lap and pull my pants down as I struggled and begged him to stop. He never used to pull my pants down before and I felt humiliated having my behind exposed towards my friend who stood shocked in the doorway and unable to move. Stepfather managed to pull my pants down a bit, and then he proceeded to spank me hard, all the while screaming about how I missed dinner. Then he stood up, I fell to the floor, and he proceeded to scream his lungs off towards my friend. I remember feeling so embarrassed, and when I met up with my friend the next day, we were both pretty somber, and I apologized that he had to see that. He told me it was okay. I feel a spike in adrenaline while writing this, and I think about how much anger and resentment I've been carrying throughout the years. My neck and shoulders feel tight, and I want to hide underneath my bed like I used to because that's the only place they couldn't reach me. I used to fantasize about murdering him. That feeling of your adrenaline spiking, I mean, man, that is, if that's not a sign that there's some fight or flight PTSD in there, um, processing i can't imagine how somebody could cope in life without processing this or at least how they could have any peace or relaxation in their life if they didn't process this litany of shit that you have been through 
any positive experiences with the abusers. My stepfather was a big people pleaser, so me and my sisters, well, obviously not a big people pleaser to the to the people he's raising, um, and that's a really common trait among narcissists is the face they present to the outside world is vastly different to the abusive face that they present to the people that live with them. Uh, stepfather was a big people pleaser, so me and my sisters would push him into buying us too much candy and a lot of expensive stuff. All of this made him feel frustrated because he couldn't say no, but we quickly learned to keep just below the line of him throwing a fit because of the emotional blackmail we subjected him to. He would often cook unhealthy but delicious meals for us. Um, darkest thoughts. I suffer from sex and love addiction. My sex addiction is fueled by things that are taboo and obscene. I fantasize about illegal things in order to climax. When I fantasize about child porn, I position myself as the child being coerced into sex. Sometimes detailed stories of child abuse turn me on and I have to act on it. It makes me feel terrible that I get off on someone else's worst nightmare, but I can't help myself. Uh, I am not turned on by children. As I said, I position myself as the child being abused. My sexual feelings are tied to pain, shame, stress, and humiliation, and it breaks my heart that life has shaped me like this. Darkest Secrets. When I was nine, I borrowed my mom's vib vibrator. I have spied on my stepfather having sex in his bedroom in the basement. He didn't close the door, and I couldn't see anything, but I heard them. Um, I have acted out self-sex at work in ways I don't want to describe because they are too graphic. I developed some specific kinks over the years, and now I struggle to imagine healthy lovemaking without the kinky stuff. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being in the position of someone being abused like a child or having sex with animals makes me feel disgusted by myself as it is against my morals. And they say it all the time on the podcast, but for many, many people, the thing that our brain reacts to with arousal is very often the very thing that causes us the most anxiety. And so you are not alone in that, and it is no comment on your morality. What would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I think I said what needed to be said, but it was never understood, and I have to accept that. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to be free of my addictions and be able to live freely and express myself in healthy ways. I have found amazing support through ACOA and SLAA and finally feel there's hope for me. That's uh, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. They are two 12-step uh, uh, programs. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I have when I was oversharing, but I usually came to regret it, especially the sexual stuff, as it was interpreted that I would actually go through with it. How do you feel after writing these things down? I felt bad when writing the bad stuff, but good in knowing that there is a way to get better. Actually, it's the biggest relief of my life because now I don't have to kill myself. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Go to 12-step programs. You will be amazed of all the friends you will make and how much love and support you will receive. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Thank you for that. Um, and I'm so glad that, that you have found a route to begin to heal um, and to let go of some of that shame. 
And finally, this is a, an email that I got from, um, how does she want to be referred to? Uh, she wants to be referred to as Lauren. And she writes, I just finished listening to your most recent episode with Elizabeth Menzel. I got this uh, email a couple weeks ago. First, I wanted to thank you for sharing your experience with somatic therapy. Not only did your story make me ball like a baby on the treadmill at the gym, which was my intent, but it inspired me to get off my high horse and, quote, try something new. So after the gym, I immediately dropped everything and headed for the mountains. I drove for probably two hours before I felt like I was comfortably distanced from the grip of my stale, stagnant hometown. To be fair, the, the name of her hometown is Stale Stagnation, which in hindsight was a terrible idea for a planned community. I sat myself down in a large field just off the main road. I focused on the sensation of warm sunlight on my shoulders, a light breeze on my face, the soft grass underneath me. I let my muscles relax, closed my eyes, and attempted to solely exist in the current moment. After a while, I started to cry, not because I was upset, but because I finally felt free. The moment I let myself go, it felt like my body had just breathed a huge sigh of relief. I felt weightless and high. It was so fucking incredible. And now I'm kicking myself because I've spent so much time being skeptical about that kind of stuff. I think I needed to hit the word skeptical a little bit harder. So again, I want to genuinely thank you for sharing that story. I listen to your podcast every single day, sometimes multiple episodes a day. And although you tell us you aren't a therapist, you have helped me more than anything ever has. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, Paul. And I hope you continue to grow and heal as a human. Also, my quote meditation session was followed by me happy breakdancing in my giant open field in the middle of nowhere. But if anybody asks... I was just practicing my nonlinear movement. And then a smiley face. Nonlinear movement is one of the things that uh, Elizabeth Menzel talked about in, in her episode. Thank you for that email. And um, I'm so glad that the podcast helps you. And the feedback I get from you guys helps me. And it's really kind of a, a cool um, circle of goodness going. I wish there was a better term for that. But it's interesting how how um, there is a momentum to addiction and depression and other things left untreated. And yet there's also an upward momentum to recovery and self-care. And so it's often why it might feel the most difficult in the beginning to do all these new things. But um, once we make them a part of our life, it's really kind of a no-brainer as long as we, we keep up with them. At least that's been my experience. And um, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you know what I'm going to say. You're not alone. You never have been. You never will be. It's just a matter of finding our tribe finding people that are safe and letting them know what's going on and being there for them. You know, after we get to a place where we stabilize a little bit and gain a few insights about what we're battling, then we can be that shoulder to lean on for somebody else. And then that's a part of that momentum. And then we feel even better. And if I hadn't done all those things, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. 
And if you didn't enjoy this podcast, then that would mean that you would have been doing something better for the last hour and a half, which means me healing was a bad thing. I do not like the turn this has taken. I'm just going to silently let myself out. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.